Jaguar Masterpieces with Amalgam Models. JECpodcast.com Hello, Wayne Scott with you on this episode 60 of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. They said we wouldn't make it, but we're here anyway. Thank you so much for being with us. Hope you're still enjoying this wonderful podcast for the worldwide Jaguar community brought to you by the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Wayne Scott with you here and I'm going to keep my intro short this week because I have to head up the motorway, up the A1, up north to Yorkshire and to the longest hill climb track in the UK at Harewood, just north of Leeds where the Jaguar Enthusiast Club are running a big event tomorrow, the day after I'm recording this and I'm hoping to catch up with some of the people who are taking their car up the hill and find out how they get on and to talk about some of the cars they've brought along whilst I'm there to share on this very podcast. Hopefully it won't be too windy or rainy and horrible to be recording. Fingers crossed we'll bring you some of the action. And also we've got some fantastic guest cars, I'm told, arriving as well. If you're listening to this and you haven't quite made it there yet, well, you can buy tickets on the gate. No problem at all. Just turn up with your fiver per car. Cheapen it fantastic day out for that money and we'll let you in through the gate simple as that and of course you can catch up on all of the information all of the coverage and the reports in Jaguar Enthusiast magazine in the October issue and it's of October I must speak because don't forget at Castle Coombe we've got that fantastic track day on the 5th of October just another reminder at the end of August all of the early bird discounts finish So if you haven't booked your tickets, if you haven't got your track laps lined up at Castle Coombe, make sure you do so now, jec.org.uk forward slash events. And talking of motorsport, a thing very close to our heart here on the JEC podcast, it was the end of the Formula E season last weekend in Berlin and Jaguar didn't quite manage the win. They finished runners-up in Season 7 of the FIA Formula E World Championship after a unpredictable season finale on the Berlin Tempelhof circuit. And the season's been pretty successful for Jaguar so far as their five-year Formula E campaign continues. Eight podiums, two wins and one pole position and 177 points scored. Not bad, really. They narrowly missed out on victory by just four points to Mercedes who have exited the championship after the end of this season. You can read the full details of that and you can see the quotes from Mitch Evans, the driver, Sam Bird and the team principal all on the news pages at jec.org.uk. And don't forget as well, by the way, if you are supporting us here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, if you're a regular listener, you've made it all the way to episode 60 and you're not a member of the club, please do help us to create this podcast for you by joining the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. It's packed full of benefits. There's fuel cards, there's insurance schemes, there's parts schemes, there's everything you need to get the most out of your Jaguar. Also, a packed calendar full of events and tours and holidays and that wonderful magazine that all comes part of your membership package. It comes every month through your letterbox and has all the information and brilliant articles that you'll ever need from the world of Jaguar. Join us, support the podcast, support the club and support the work that we do in keeping the Jaguar community worldwide in touch. Join now at jc.org.uk. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. 
On this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club Hall of Fame, we are inducting someone that is so much of a legend, he has a rally named after himself. And I think legend is the right word, isn't it, Richard? Because Roger Clark was just that for rallying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Roger Albert Clark, MBE, born back on the 5th of August in 1939, became an absolutely uh, iconic figure within British motorsport in my own early fledgling amateur rallying career in the 70s. I would frequently, before I destroyed my car, park it up and uh, drive all the way to Scotland or all the way to North Wales just to watch him go through a couple of stages because he was the first Brit to win a World Rally Championship event when, uh, of course, he won the 1976 RAC Rally. And from that moment on, Roger was ingrained in the heart and souls of every single British rally fan, a remarkable character. Well, he's so well-loved that there is a statue of him at Mallory Park, and it's there at Mallory Park for a reason, because he hailed originally from Hinckley in Leicestershire, didn't he? Yes, he did indeed. His dad was also called Roger Clark, funnily enough. Um, he went to Hinckley Grammar School. Um, he wasn't a particularly brilliant student, although I think he got five O-levels. Uh, and, of course, he had a, a younger brother, Stan, who was also a rally driver. And uh, the Clark family, as it were, had a very successful at the time series of dealerships, car dealerships. Uh, and in fact, I think going back to the mid seventies, there were, there were four dealerships. They specialized in, uh, they had Ford, Jensen, uh, Porsche, Alfa Romeo. They really were flying very, very high in the Leicester area during that period. Well, he was very known for having one particular co-driver and they worked very well together. That was, of course, Jim Porter. And they met right at the beginning of Roger Clark's career when he was driving in club events, as so many legends of the period did, uh, in fact, with the Leicester Car Club. And that's how it started. It was very grassroots at the beginning, wasn't it? It was. And in fact, if you look back, there, there have been uh, some amazing stories of those early days from those motor clubs where drivers and co-drivers got together and, and really stuck their bond. I mean, there was an amazing one from my own Craven Motor Club, which was Derek Skinner, a man who rallied an MGB, a real character from the Reading area, uh, who had a co-driver by the name of Peter Rushforth with him. And uh, they used to compete in MGBs wearing bowler hats and having rolled up umbrellas in the back. And it was that type of camaraderie that led to the meeting of Jim and Roger. And they stayed together for over 20 years, I believe. Well, they went on to win even through those Leicester... Uh, car club days the east midlands rally championship in 61 and 62 and fourth mm. overall in a class win in the international circuit of ireland rally in 63 which was a huge event in the 60s one of the real big ones and third in the very early stages of the motoring news championship which still runs today um, and then of course some amazing successes through his career in the circuit of scotland rallies as well but it was in 1963 that his first works drive came and he'd been driving Fords and uh, had a lot of success in a BMC uh, supported Mini Cooper. But it was in 1963 when he met Graham Robson, who he had been rallying with in a Roots Group car, a Sunbeam Rapier. And Graham had just been offered the job by Harry Webster over at Standard Triumph to run the Triumph TR Works rally team. And he entered... Mm in a TR4 in 1963, a TR4 with the number plate 4VC, which I was with at the weekend, Richard, that car, just as it was when Roger Clark and Brian Colchith drove it in 1963. And they took on that year, in his first works drive, the Spa Sophia Liège. But it was to be a long career of really successful works drives before, again, him and Graham would meet at the Ford Works team as well. 
It was indeed. I mean, also during the 60s, of course, he, he campaigned a Ford Cortina GT, drove a really well, and he had a great um, work deal with uh, Rover. He uh, They went into the uh, Rover uh, 2000, I think it was, in the 1965 Monte Carlo rally in their category with which they won. And, of course, right the way throughout his career, even towards the end, um, he drove again uh, in a TR7V8, another car which is very close to your heart. Mm. And uh, I actually was lucky enough to work with Roger in 1981, both when he had his hands on the TR7V8 and, of course, the MCD, uh, famous RS1800, with which he competed on the RAC rally with television presenter Chris Searle in a TV series called In at the Deep End, which is still available on YouTube for any uh, of our listeners who might want to watch it. Fascinating insight into what happens when you put a journalist who's not rally trained next to a man like Roger Clark. <laughs> well, he did launch so many careers. Another very famous navigator that he had was one Dave Richards, who now, of course, famous for ProDrive and for uh, launching the McRae's career and, of course, now running the governing body Motorsport UK. And if anyone remembers Top Gear as well, do you remember Tony Mason? Well, he started Saddle alongside Roger Clark as well, didn't he? He did indeed. There were, there were some very successful partnerships. And in fact, David Richards, as I believe David prefers to be called, I mean, he also, don't forget, went on to co-drive Harry Vatanen and had a phenomenal success in the Acropolis Rally and, and others and the Rockman's Escorts as well. But those partnerships to which you talk about, Roger also at one point teamed up alongside in a Ford Cortina GT with the amazing Vic Alford, who, of course, mm. if you look at Vic's career, had some incredible drives in sports car racing in those 1,000-horsepower Porsches that we're familiar with from the old days. So, yeah, Roger was one of those guys. He, he spread his talents across a number of marks, but it's with Ford Motor Company that Roger will always be remembered, uh, having done such a fantastic job for them, because they won uh, Clark and Porter, of course, the two of them won the British Rally Championship title in 72, 73, 75. I mean, they, they really were on a roll together, and they did some tremendous things in those wonderful-looking Mark One and Mark II Ford Escorts. Absolutely. It was the Lombard RAC Rally that I always associate with Roger Clark, and those, uh, those red and black uh, Mark II Escorts, and mm. they are they're iconic now in rally history, aren't they? they are indeed. Rog Roger was the first one to really take the rallying brand onto television advertising because I'm sure many of us, the older members, will remember this. He was sponsored by Cossack Hairspray, and uh, we went across the Borum. Uh, sorry, Bagshot to the military tank uh, range. There it was the first time. I was ever lucky enough to sit in a passenger seat with Roger uh, for the television filming of that. And the Cossack hairspray ad with Roger grooming his silver locks at the end of it was the start of real commercial investment in rallying. The early days were supported heavily by SO Uniflow product. But of course, the cars to which you're referring, they were very well known as the Cossack RS1800s. And then when he drove for Jack Fielding's mainland car deliveries MCD rally team out of Widnes in Cheshire those cars were also red and black in deference to both the MCD colours but also Rogers works career in those famous Mark II RS 1800s and most recently after his professional career sort of subsided back into club motorsport and he never left the sport of rally and he was always front and centre of it even after he'd sort of hung up his professional overall so to speak he actually went went over to Silverstone and designed that rallycross circuit for them didn't he and was very much mm. part of the the rallycross revolution here in the UK in the late 90s he was I was looking at some rallycross coverage the other day with Murray Walker giving amazing commentary and Roger 
um, campaigned one of the works four-wheel drive V6 Capris, which they were pretty impressive when they first came out, but they suffered some severe reliability problems, and in fact Ford dropped that program. But you know, when you look back, I mean, he he was very successful in the Ford Zodiac. He, he rallied successfully in Eastern Europe. We mustn't forget Stuart Pegg, also his co-driver, sat alongside him for a while. Stuart did a great job. They competed also Roger competed in the Ford Capri in the Tour of Britain which was one of those great events and also the Caravan Club organised that fantastic uh, rallying event where rally cars had caravans attached to the back of them there was certainly plenty of thrills and spills but the great thing about Roger apart from his unbelievable talent when he was behind the steering wheel and his seriousness when he was competing he was a brilliant raconteur and he enjoyed a pine tour seven you know a bit like Jerry Marshall in those days in fact we were talking recently about the Kentigan suite, and I remember seeing Jerry, Roger, and Tony Lanfranchi holding up the bar together there. That would have been a contest you'd have avoided unless you were a very <laughs> serious drinker. But, of course, Roger also had you know two sons, and they've gone on uh, to form RCM, which is leading light in rally preparation in this country. And, in fact, if you look at rogerclarkmotorsport.co.uk, there's a fantastic timeline of Roger's career, which included him uh, being awarded the MBE, of course, for his services. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I mentioned, he has that statue, bronze statue at Mallory Park. And it's really testament to the fact that he was a British driver that held his own amongst those famous Scandinavians, the likes of Hanu Mikler and others who were his contemporaries. Mm. But he was a Brit. And I always felt like he was lost a little bit too soon because, uh, you know, he passed away. He didn't even make his 60th birthday. He passed away taking all that knowledge and, and all those stories with him and stories that we could still really be enjoying now, I'm sure. Mm, absolutely. I mean, sad, I think he suffered a stroke back in January 98 um, that was ultimately his demise. But as I say, for those of uh, our listeners that are real Roger Clark fans, there's lots of grainy stuff. But that documentary in at the deep end with Chris Searle, a half-hour programme on YouTube, really does show Roger in lots of different lights because Chris, bless him, did a series of uh, six television programmes doing a different role in each time. And we really did throw him in at the deep end at MCD. We awarded him the, the role of being Roger's co-driver. And he also had to drive one of the stages, which <laughs> left Roger less than enamoured. But if you watch that series, you'll see the true Roger Clark. You'll see the fun side of him, but you'll also see the serious side. Never a man to be crossed, but somebody, certainly in my books, who is right up there with the very top tin Bucktees in our Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we are talking to a true craftsman, actually, and leader of many craftsmen who makes amazing things. And if you're into cars, if you're into Jaguars, listen up, because this is going to be, well, a moment where we all step back to being a kid, I think. And also, brilliantly, to have a business on base like the Jaguar Enthusiast Club is in Bristol as well. Bristol, of course, the home of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the British Aeroplane Company, and other huge engineering pioneers that made huge engineering things. 
the person I'm talking to now makes very tiny engineering things. I'll tell you more in a second. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy Copeman. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for inviting me, Wayne. It's a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you on. And this is a very different interview for us because normally we're talking about Jaguars in one-to-one scale. Uh, but today you're going to be talking us through Amalgam Models, which is the business base in Bristol that makes well let's face it the best scale models of cars in the world so uh, start us with some background on who Amalgam are how long the company's been running and how many people work there so we started as a general model making company in 1985 as a partnership I, I was and the three other partners that formed Amalgam in the first place we were working for a, another model company and we realized that we were in fact doing all of the work including organizing ourselves <laughs> so we decided we might as well do it uh, start up on our own and, and create an amalgam and the bulk of what we were doing was architectural models and we had been doing a bit of work with with the people that we we, we came from we'd been doing a bit of work with norman foster so we immediately connected with the um foster and partners office and and that was a, a relationship that went on and on and I still have, you know, the the head of design there is a friend and they still come to us from time to time for the kind of quirkier, not for general, not for architectural models, but for other projects that might come up. They're a bit more up our street in terms of shiny stuff, mm. maybe not cars, but um, other forms of transport and so on. Mm-hmm. So we started straight in with Fosters and a bunch of other local um, clients, mainly architects, also some product designers, and we worked for Dyson pretty much straight away. I think that was about three years in, so about 19, sorry, 88 or so. Um, and then in 1995, some of the people that were working for Amalgam at the time were former one fanatics and I was kind of reconnecting with my passion for Formula One that I was a massive Jim Clark fan back in the day as a youngster as a child really and um, I you know their kind of enthusiasm reignited mine and we made contact with Tyrrell first and I remember visiting the Tyrrell Formula One team still in the woodyard at the time mm-hmm. And Bob Tyrrell's now a friend, actually. That sort of circle came, you know, came around. And and then we also got in touch with Jordan. And Jordan Grand Prix gave us the opportunity to, to make a model and put it in front of Eddie. And it, we just started with Jordan. That, that was never a commercial success. Then we went on to uh, introduce ourselves off the back of that to Williams um, in 95, 96, when they were really dominant. Um, and then we moved on to Ferrari and that was really, you know, then things started to take off. So that was just at the time, 98, when Schumacher was just about to become dominant. Amazing. Um, We had a great run through with Michael Schumacher. Is there still a need for modeling in, in industry and design in the same way with so many sort of 3D packages with computers now? Yeah, no, they, there's still a design. I mean, using Foster as an example, you know, I visit them from time to time and just see what's going on there. They're right at the cutting edge of ways and means of presenting. And they do do a lot of visualization, a lot of walkthroughs, but they also want physical models 
that it, it's just something that you can engage with. You're, when you're looking at a physical model, I mean, you could say that you can do this with VR as well, but it's not the same really. And maybe that'll eventually kind of take another slice of the action away from physical model making. But there's, you're fully in control of the view that you take of the of the object, the scheme. You know, you can move around and put your face in different positions and get every angle that you want. And you just don't get that with walkthrough. You know that it's being presented to you. You know, you're seeing the slice that the designer wants you to see. And actually, if you really want to convince somebody of the, you know, the wonder of your design, then it's better to put the model in front of them and they're fully convinced that way. I think people just love physical model objects anyway. So it's a, it's a great experience and it's, you know, adds a little quality to the experience for the for the client or whoever it is that you're trying to convince with your model. Sure. No, it's great to hear that. And it's great to hear that those skills still have a home in industry as well because you hear so often of amazing craftsmen skills being lost as the sort of digital generation takes over um but you know you started there uh, with those formula one models your big breakthrough then with ferrari and uh, what, what was the journey then from that point up to where you are now building these incredible scale models of classic cars motorsport icons and across multiple places across the world as well aren't you yeah, we we are. I mean, just to touch on that, you know, the, the various locations that we've got. We we have our Bristol workshop, which is quite small but very specialised, and we do special projects there. Um, and it's a a our UK DC, and it, it's where we operate our sales and marketing from. So, an important spot for us, and we do some very interesting projects out of there. Not all of which we can talk about. They tend to be, you know, a number of secret ones <laughs> and um annoyingly some of the most interesting things we do we can't talk about but uh, as well as our uk uk location for special projects we've also got uh, an operation in china where we've got over 200 people that was set up by my son leo uh in 2005 so that's been going for 16 years plus and then we've also more recently set up a small operation in hungary where we got 40 people. So we've got the, the the sort of heart of the operation is in the UK. We've got a tremendously skilled operation in China. I think people often associate China with sort of dumbed down mass production, but in fact, some of our most skilled people are there in the development department. And then this rather beautiful operation in Hungary, which is in the south of Hungary in Pesh, in a very oh, beautiful restored porcelain factory let's put aside any kind of connotations right now of toy cars okay dear listener this is not what we're talking about so we've all had the dinkies we've all had the the cars that we uh, you know played with as a kid forget them this is totally different these are works of art aren't they sandy and to explain that let's just go through a typical model what goes into development what goes into design and then what goes into creating all of the components and that then ultimately get put together to create these incredible masterpieces talk us through the journey so there are two different paths they converge somewhat on the way along but the um for modern for current cars whether they be formula one cars or or road cars, mostly hypercars. I mean, we're never modeling anything that's not of high value because the, the value of the model is so high that they wouldn't, you know, your average car would not support the value of the model. Um, so modern cars where 
we can get the CAD. We take the CAD from the designer. So be it from Formula One teams, we get the CAD pretty early in the season, which is that took a long time to develop the the trust for the teams to, to be willing to share that with us. But these days we get that prior to the launch, but not too far prior to the launch, because actually they're still developing right the way through to the launch anyway. And so if we got in any earlier, it probably wouldn't be right. But we get that supplied CAD, um, same for the road cars. And we then have to rework that so that it's we're, we're creating the engineering, if you like, for the model rather than the car. So we're dispensing with a lot of detail that is irrelevant because we can't see it. You know, you can't see it on the surface of the model. Um, uh, and then we're adding details that allow us to actually construct the model in CAD. And then to a large extent these days, we 3D print parts that are going to be the patterns. Um, so we're not actually 3D printing parts to get used in the final model, but we're creating patterns that are then going to go into a, a silicon rubber mould, and then we're casting parts in that mould in, in prototype and resin. And it's those parts that are then fettled, sanded, finished, fitted, um, primed, uh, and then they go through a, a fitting process after that to make sure that everything's perfectly, you know, all the shut lines are, are perfect before going into spraying and dettling and final assembly. Now, if it's a classic car, of course, we haven't got the CAD in the first place. So our first step there is to go out and scan the car. And we've now got very, very good connections to a whole host of different people that got the best examples of of the cars in question. So for, uh, for instance, with um, 330 P4, uh, we visited Montremblant, which is owned by Laurent Stroll, and we scanned his 330p4, which is the only decent one in existence. And um, you know, it's that it's important that we've got a really good car to start from, obviously. You know, that's all the essence. And then, oftentimes, that might not be exactly as it raced back in the day, and we can make adjustments and and change the design either straight physically into the model, just looking at photographs, or we might make those changes into CAD and 3D print parts from that CAD. Uh, and then when we get to the end of that CAD process, we're back in line with the same the same path that we follow for the modern cars. Do you make yourself then, from those drawings and, and the 3D printing, do you make yourself, in effect, a kit that, they, that you then assemble? Is, is that the next stage? It is, and it's a... We have been persuaded to sell people kits in the past, but we really shy away from doing that these days. And that's partly because it, it, we've got lots of jigs and processes that you can't really replicate if you're trying to build the thing at home. So whilst it is possible, it's pretty onerous actually building a set of our parts. You know, we don't, we haven't got a, an instruction um, chart either. So that's not going to help people. Um, so yeah, that is essentially what we've got is a kit of parts. One of your things that you specialise in is is bespoke models, customization, and you know someone can come to you and and have their exact car reproduced in any scale that they like, including, I know, some kind of uh, occasion to include damage <laughs> and perhaps the odd scratch here and there. And I have to say, direct everyone listening to this to the website Amalgam Models because. My goodness me, some of those models that you create depicting uh, race cars that have finished the race. My favourite one, the Briggs Cunningham E-Type that has just finished Le Mans and it's got all the rubber marks and the flies stuck on it and the odd ding in the wing. 
mean, that is just detail on another level, isn't it? How do you even begin to, to map that out onto a model? That is, it, it's all about photography, that. I mean, that's the only resource we've got is contemporary photographs. So it's about just spending a long time looking through everything that's available, putting the story together, because often the photo archive is not particularly well annotated. So we can pull together a load of photographs and then you've got to try and create the, you know, nail down exactly what happened when during the race. Um, and, you know, we can sometimes refer to good commentary or records of, you know, back in the day, contemporary reports of the race and so on, we'll feed that into it as well. But it, it's just down to photography, um, contemporary photographs taken at the race. And I mean, that's a, it's a combination of, you know, technical excellence, if you like, in terms of the processes that you use to replicate the, you know, spraying techniques and spattering with a brush and kind of all kinds of other stuff and to, to, to replicate the, all the damage and the bits of tape or cables or whatever, <laughs> strapping the bonnet down in the case of that coming and gun. Um, but it's also a degree of artistry there as well. So, you know, that's one of the things that I think we can most honestly claim. People are very apt to say, wow, you know, what you do is pure art. And you think, well, okay, I'm not entirely going to... I mean, it's, it, there's no sort of intermediate ter terminology that you can use to kind of describe something which is extremely artistic but is not fine art you know mm. so we're not making fine art but what we do in order to make a model that is as good as we do you've got to have a, a lot of artistic um, feeling for the job and you've got to have a lot of artistic and um, skills about you as well yeah and that was my next question really what sort of skills do you have to build in order to be on the production line at Amalgam, where do you find these people from? How do you train them? How do these people go through life to get the skills to create such a masterpiece? Where does that yeah. come from? I mean, it's interesting with model makers that just, did, you know, putting aside our very special kind of niche that we fill with in making large-scale model cars, just model making generally, um, there are a number of model making courses uh, that are usually a, a, an extension of a design course at a few universities and colleges around the UK. I mean, that's the same worldwide. But we, to be brutally honest, find that people that have done those courses, it's not utterly useless. I mean, they, there are, you know, they, they'll bring some useful skills with them, but they're pretty limited, really. And it, it's one of those things that has to be learned in the old way with a, a master craftsman and an apprentice. That's the only way you can really pick up all of the skills over a period of time, working beside somebody. And and you're not just learning, you know, it's not about having a, a, a sort of ticking some specific boxes and then, bang, you know, bingo, you become a great model maker. Because a lot of it is about the ability to find solutions. So you're learning attitude and you know flexibility and inventiveness in a way in the round and and that is you say the only way you can really learn it is in that it, it, by having the experience working with somebody who's very good at it already do you think you need a passion for cars in order to model one properly uh, yeah i'd say i mean there probably are exceptions to that rule but that absolutely is the rule 
um, because you need to understand a lot. I mean, yeah, you'd, you'd be, you know, you'd be flying in the dark, really, even if you didn't have any understanding of the the surrounding, all of the important things about the history. Of, uh, I, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. I had a meeting with somebody who's a, an influencer from China. I mean, one of the markets that we're really interested in expanding into is is China. And um, I was speaking to somebody who is uh, he's a graduated with a physics, a master's physics degree, and then decided to create a business because of his time in the UK, studying in the UK, his, his master's degree in physics. He just became incredibly interested in the history of the, of the European car and particularly of high-performance cars and, you know, the most important design icons and so on. And he has, he wants to take that passion and the knowledge to China, which is, with a few exceptions, is a kind of desert in terms of true passion. I mean, people have got passion for modern hypercars and supercars, but not for, for classics. It just doesn't exist there. But anyway, that that's the the air that we breathe. I think really that kind of nourishes us is the is the passion for the cars. Mm. And I, you know, I'd like to say that we're expert in some cars. I wouldn't claim this for myself, but my son, who's developing the models, you know, got and and leading the development of of all of the models that we do, um, his knowledge of certain cars that he's worked on is extreme, you know, and he probably knows as much as anybody in the world about some of these cars. So it's a very important part of what we do. Yes, your models are almost that good. I wonder if you could take a model. And with the knowledge and understanding of that vehicle that you've put into that model, reverse engineer it and and build the the real thing. Do do you think they're that accurate that you could possibly do that? <laughs> yeah, I suppose the yeah, the thing is that what we might end up with is a shell that doesn't have any of the <laughs> any of the running gear inside. I you know our knowledge of the visible parts of the running gear is is good, but the engineering that's hidden inside is pretty non-existent, really. Um, <laughs> I mean, we often get asked by people to make full-size replicas, and although we haven't actually done it yet, we've been on the verge of moving into making concept cars and show cars in the past. Wow. So we've discussed that with Ferrari, for instance, for a number of years. Wow. Um, very close to doing it with Mercedes when they started in Formula One and making all of their show cars. It's amazing. I mean, so, you know, for, for those listening in, we must sort of, uh, uh, help people to understand that a lot of your models to buy them they're probably more they would probably cost more than the average family saloon in in a real car um but for all the good reasons that you've outlined you know and the and um, i can only imagine the man hours that go into creating those models so what sort of a person and why invests that amount of money into having craftsmen like yourselves create a model of their specification yeah, I think there's a. We are selling to a, a very disparate kind of wide range of different people, and you know, one of them for sure are, are people that own very high-end Ferraris. You know, the the um, uh, uh, Ferrari has been the most important relationship we've had over the years because commercially they're so strong at the very top of the market, and um, you know, if you've paid whatever it was, come a million for your LaFerrari. I mean, most of those owners have got half a dozen at least. In fact, I think to be qualified to buy it. 
and that Ferrari to be on the list. You've got to own a certain number of Ferraris, um, and they need to be the highest in the range. So those people would love to, generally speaking, their cars are in a garage somewhere. I mean, this will go for, you know, E-type owners as well, and they're not necessarily haven't got it parked up on the pavement anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be in a garage somewhere, it's far away, and it's great to have something that reminds you about your, one of the most precious objects in your life, basically. Mm-hmm. So that that's one of the reasons that people buy models. We also sell to fanatical collectors and I know that there are there's there's several people around the world that have got really huge collections of our models. There's there's one guy in Saudi Arabia. I remember seeing photographs that he sent through of his, and he's got an an apartment that he's dedicated to keeping the models, and they're just all laid out on the floor in rows. Very beautiful apartment. <laughs> um, yeah, there are a few of those people around the world. So kind of super collectors, if you like. Um, and then there are, there's also, they're bought for commercial purposes. So um, we have sold a number of batches of models, really large batches, chiefly again to Ferrari, that are gifted to owners um, at the time. So, so, you know, not at the time that you're specifying the car, but sometime, some months later, you get a, a gift model from the, from the manufacturer. Amazing. You, you know you're doing well in life when the manufacturer sends you a model of the car you've just bought from them. I think that's, <laughs> that's a life goal, ladies and gentlemen, right there <laughs> to, to achieve that. Um, but um, in terms of Jaguar, I mentioned the Cunningham E-Type that you've got shown very proudly on your website, a really beautiful, stunning model. And, you know, it's one that you, you just find yourself staring at for hours on end, I can imagine. I was like that with the photographs. Goodness knows what it must be like when it's in front of you. So uh, describe some of the other in the other models in your Jaguar range. So we've got the, I, the, the biggest success for us has been the E-Type, which, and there's the, I suppose there's two reasons for that. One of them is that there's there was a fair few of them sold. So it's not a, a car, it, it's a a very beautiful car and that's the other reason that we've sold so many of them is it's just such an incredible beautiful design and and so that's a really attractive piece that and and that reaches outside the um the sort of core group of of people that most of your members um to a kind of wider audience of people who just appreciate something that's beautiful so that's been tremendously successful for us. We've modelled all of Ralph Lawrence's cars in that he displayed uh, in a an exhibition in 2010 at the Louvre, and amongst those was a uh, we haven't modelled his C type actually that will come later, but his XK120, um, and that led on to other versions of the XK120, modelled XK140s, um, the lightweight and the D-type, so not so many actually, and there's still plenty to do. I mean, chiefly, I'd really like to, to, to fill a gap with the C-type, mm. um, and perhaps there's some later cars as well. The um, XJ13, is that the correct code? I Absolutely, think it is. yeah, that's it. And, uh, yeah, there's only one of them to get the correct dimensions from, and you know where it is. It's in Gaydon and the uh, Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. So I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't mind if you went and took a few measurements on a quiet. No, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, 
<laughs> good buddies with them. I'm sure they'd be obliging. Is there a car that you haven't modelled yet, from any mark, really, that you would really love to create a masterpiece of? Um, the most, the one that comes to mind immediately um, will be an Alfa Romeo, uh, one of the Lungo Coupes of pre-war. Um, the, the, <laughs> the number escapes me, I'm afraid. Um, but those those really beautiful long wheelbase um, coupes from the early thirties. Beautiful, yeah, with a straight eight engine in them and uh, beautiful flowing lines. Yes, so that's you know some of those are the most valuable cars in the world, the touring bodied ones, and um, we'd love to make a, a series of those. That'd be fantastic. Well, if anyone's listening with a, I don't know, an Alfa Romeo 8C from the 1930s or something, get in touch. <laughs> you never know who's listening, you see, Sandy. You just never know. <laughs> That's right. We're hoping, actually, to make... We Long, long ago, we um, the first classic car that we ever modelled was a Maserati 250F. Hmm. Um, and we're going to make another edition of the 250F with the assistance of, of the owners who are uh, in Switzerland. So uh, another one that's coming up soon, actually, that is also supported by the investment of an owner uh, is the Aston Martin DB4 GT Zagato. So we've got a model of that coming through soon. And, yeah, it, it would be nice just to fill all these gaps that have been left in the... We, we've been a bit distracted by the... You know the, the current commercially of course by the current round of supercars and hypercars it would be great to kind of go back and and get back into doing some more classics mm. it was interesting for me some of those names you've reeled off there i'm picturing the car in my mind and i know for sure that those cars in one-to-one -one scale in real life are difficult to get right when you're restoring them to get the curves right to get the fit of the panels mm -hmm. right when you take that into miniature I think it's got to be a nightmare hasn't it well it it is but we're greatly assisted and this is something that we apart from a two or three models that we made right at the beginning of our uh, classic career so to speak um ever since then we've been digitally scanning every car and the massive advantage of that is that we know that everything is in the right place but then of course you're to, you know the one thing we do have to be aware of is just exactly what you were saying is that you're not really sure you've got to make sure you've got an example that hasn't been rebuilt rather badly and um, of which there are many aren't there um so you've got to be sure that the shape is right of the real car that you're scanning but we can check you know i think we've got a very good eye for those things um and that that isn't you know that's another thing that develops over the years is that is that eye for you know being able to look at a photograph and make sure that you've got the shape looking right well to look through your website is to be like a kid in the sweet shop again it really is and i urge everyone to go and have a look uh, the website is amalgamcollection.com uh, looking at the pictures is one thing these are the sort of models though you've got to see in the flesh and i understand that very shortly we'll have two on display at the jaguar enthusiast club headquarters in bristol as well just around the corner from where amalgam are based and, uh, and i also know uh, the amalgam factory is top secret stuff because such is the detail of these cars 
but it's like a like a nuclear bunker in there to keep them all secret. Uh, but brilliant to have a, an insight into this world, Sandy, and an insight into the craftsmanship that goes into these. So uh, have a look at that website, amalgamcollection.com. Of course, there are two examples on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club shop as well. If you fancy having one of these gracing your, your living room, your drawing room, your foyer i think you're the sort of person who has a foyer if you're uh, in the market for these models <laughs> or wherever uh, do have a look at them but uh, sandy fantastic uh, to talk to you and thanks for coming on and sharing that amazing story no thank you my pleasure you're listening to the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast tom's jaguar racing diary Sharing the knowledge, drama, and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So with Brian's hatch now behind us, we're on to the uh, preparations for the next round, which is up at Cadwell Park. So um, it's quite a busy one for us actually preparing for Cadwell because we've got um, we're back to preparing two cars again. So um, if you can remember going back to quite a few episodes ago, unfortunately uh, Matthew had the incident at the very first round of the year at Silverstone when the fuel rail fractured on the XJR6. So we've been slowly piecing this car back together. Um, we were going to get it uh, ready for some of the previous rounds, but due to kind of delays with COVID and Brexit, quite a lot of electrical opponents have been on back order and we've been getting delays, etc. So we actually um, have been waiting quite a long period of time for the ECU that unfortunately got damaged on the fire. So um, we managed to get quite a lot of it um, built up in the background, but these kind of components were holding us back. So we decided to kind of shelve the car for the moment. Matthew concentrated in driving the XJ40, um, which is a, just a, a little higher car that we've got in Class A, which was to, to keep his eye in and, and get used to being out on track because he is a new driver this year. So um, we decided to do that for Castle Coombe and that Cadwell would be the round. So we've had my car back in on the ramp after brands just to check through it, see if there's any problems, look over all the data, pretty similar to what we normally do, to be honest with you. Um, we'll obviously change all the fluids later on in the week. So we've got two test sessions up at Cadwell. We're testing on Tuesday with Matthew's car. Um, and we are testing with mine on the Thursday. So it's going to be a bit of a hectic week. Um, we've got quite a run up to it. Um, Matthews is currently on the dyno literally as we speak. So um, we're going through the final checks on that. So far, so good. It's all back together. It's all up and running. Um, so that's going to go on Tuesday. Then my car, um, luckily enough, we didn't really find any issues after brands, which is absolutely brilliant news. We've got one small problem, which is just straightforward. Um, we, I, I had a bit of a brake vibration. Um, was actually down to some gravel, etc. Um, but we did mention that one of the bit of stones got in and put a, quite a nasty score on one of the discs, which was fine to get us through the race. But to be honest with you, we're just not going to risk it for Cadwell. So we've just got to put a new set of discs on mine. Um, we've looked over all the data. Looks like the gearbox temperatures are absolutely perfect now. So I'm really, really, really happy with that because that's been an ongoing issue for a while, really. Um, we're probably 25 deg uh, degrees different over a race, which is which is brilliant. So the all is doing its job so hopefully now that stops us having any issues with the gearbox side of things um, so that should be the end of that one um, we're gonna put another set of tires on mine um, we've got a scrub set from brands ready to go on other than that that is pretty much it obviously Thursday we've got plenty of time to test 
tech, um, check all the settings on the car. I'm not really sure what we're going to have to do for Cadwell because, as I said, we've, we've, I've never actually raced there. I've driven another car there, so it's good that I'm going to get a um, chance to have a few laps around there before we race on the bank holiday Monday. So, like I said, uh, Matthew's car is up on a dyno now. Providing that's all okay, that will be there on Tuesday to test. We'll uh, wind all the damper settings back. We've got quite a lot to do with Matthew's because it hasn't been used for a long period of time and we've added some improvements to it while it's uh, been apart. Most of them have been tested and developed on my car and we've moved that over. So really excited to see how, how that goes with the setup. But yeah, it, it should be fa fairly plain sailing. We've also got to do um, a couple of small wiring jobs on mine. Um, one of the things that um, has come into the championship since we've moved over to the classic touring car is the scrutineers have been really cracking down on our regulations and making sure all of our cars are absolutely bang on to regulations within our class structure. And one of the things that is a bit of a grey area in our relations is different classes should have MOTable lights. Um, and the understanding of most was that only class A needed full MOTable lights. So when I say MOTable lights, I mean side lights, main beams, indicators, brake lights, fog lights, etc. Now, I actually run side lights, main lights, and rain lights as well as brake lights but we don't use any directional indicators the rule is that um, as they've gone over the regulations they've stated that we do all actually have to have indicators now that sounds quite a straightforward task but because we've completely removed all of that from mine completely and we run a, a pdm so we don't run any fuse boxes um, we run a powered distribution module um, we're going to have to recalibrate that and add some led lights to do that so we're going to have to do it for this round but uh, i mean it's fairly straightforward in the scale of things but we're going to need to run some new wiring loom into the car to allow to go to the front sides and rear but that is what it is. It's just uh, just a case of compliance to the regs, which is really good news, to be honest, that they're cracking down on it, making sure everyone is to the book, which is good news. Um, other than that, generally speaking, um, we had a great result at Brands, as I said in last week's um, episode, and I'm really looking forward to, to Cadwell. It's a really technical circuit. It's very tight, so qualifying will be key here. So the fact that we've got some testing time will be great, um, and I think it is really, really tight on the championship overall. Um, it looks like I'm third in the standings. Um, I think uh, Tom Lempful and uh, Mike Seaborn are at the top so it's very close between those two um, and also me as well I think I've just pipped James Ram on points now for the class overall win so far but we still need to keep up with the results um, I think we still need at least um, a win in class both wins in classes on both races at Cadwell to to have a chance of winning the class James obviously will be out as normal and so will Colin um, and they'll be bowed to beat um, around there especially being such a tight and technical circuit I don't think we're going to have anywhere for the XJR to stretch its legs really um, but we'll see um, you just never know with these kind of circuits and I've never raced a saloon there so I'm going to be uh, I'm not really going to sure where I'm going to go on car setup I'm just going to leave it on the middle settings um, we'll obviously test next week I'll give you an update on the next episode and let you know how both cars are going and what we're doing setup-wise ready for capital. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. 
This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.